3: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Miami Nice. I am your co-host, Blake Howard, joining me undercover in a club, listening to the greatest song ever made, Numb Encore by Jay-Z and Lincoln Park, is my partner in crime, as always, just scoping out the crowd, Katie Walsh.
4: I'm ordering three drinks at once, baby.
3: <laughs> three drinks at once. She got a tan in Miami. This is obviously a show that's all about really modern man. We are a horny campfire for everything Michael Mann, um, pretty much post Ali. And if you're a Michael Mann fan, it's been a momentous week. New York Times bestselling author now, Michael Mann, uh, to add to Academy Award nominee and all those other things. But very recently in fact the 20th of july our guest did an amazing profile on michael mann we've spoken to so many people who've been in his orbit we've spoken to people who've done countless interviews you know bilga ibiri feels like a michael mannologist at this point so having him and those people come on the show but this terrific profile which is titled michael mann's damaged man was done by our guest today and Usually we have a brief of, we're going to talk about a specific scene. We're going to talk about a specific film. We're going to talk about a specific theme, but we just want to hear what it's like to watch Michael Mann stomping around Rome, what it's like to meet the man. Thank you so much for being a part of the show, Jonah Weiner. How are you, my friend?
5: Hey, doing really great. Got to, uh, glad to be on here.
3: Well, look, you did a terrific piece and I think it, we weren't the only ones probably to see this piece in the new york times and effusively gush about how great it was just as a piece a a a, a capture a snapshot of the man's entire career and how he finally came to this film that we as man heads have known he's had in a drawer for like 20 years so it's so cool that you got to sort of profile him with this in uh right about to happen profile him right before heat 2 comes out in this like new bit of productivity from him post tokyo vice so it's very exciting but um katie had the most important question i think of anything that we're going to ask today katie can you please ask Jonah? because we you know we're serious journalists here so um katie can you please ask Jonah the most important question of all
4: the thing at the top of my mind i just i got to know about michael man's drip i feel like that theme <laughs> was just like exuding through the profile i mean you open with his roomy ombre button-up that bled (laughs) from green to black with white jeans
5: I'm glad full Euro I'm glad to know that a fellow uh uh, fashion enthusiast who appreciates (laughs) appreciates man's status as a drip Lord which is not like we're not alone you know that we, we there are many of us who who know that he has been getting off major fits um apparently actually since film school i was really happy to see there's a shot that that he provided of himself at film school uh that ran with the times magazine piece um that blake was just talking about where he's wearing like this little like black mock neck maybe and he's got this sort of like i don't know if it's an unclasped watch or a bracelet but i mean he was on and he's holding a you know he's blasting a dart uh it just like the, the swag was on point you know back the when he swag
4: was... is 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 flowing in this profile I mean not only are you describing it so beautifully but like there was that photo of him French 1967 film school or England wherever he is and then there's also the photo of him shooting thief uh just unzipped hoodie no shirt know, <laughs> I'm like amazing. what's going on here
5: He's, I uh, mean, it's, it's funny. I, yeah. I didn't, if I have one regret, it's that I didn't ask him about fashion at all and his fashion choices for whatever reason. I don't know. If I'd had maybe an extra day with him, we could have gotten there. But I just didn't know. I don't know if I mean, I'd be really curious because it's clearly, I mean, actually, it's, it's funny. We're talking about this in sort of, you know, in a half joking way. But obviously, it's, I mean, it's not, um, you know a million miles it's not far-fetched to think like he actually would have interesting things to say about how he puts an outfit together the same way that he'd have an interesting thing to say about how he you know wants a a set to be decorated uh he clearly thinks about this stuff
4: Oh, absolutely and function and form and aesthetics all bleeding together i mean it has to at least function somewhat in his mind in the same way that he approaches his movies
0: style
3: factors factors in his movies you know even even as crazy like if folks are listening to Miami Nice, they've probably listened to some of our other shows. But even as recently as One Thief Minute, where we did this sort of remembrance of James Khan and Thief, Jim Belushi talks about Michael Mann. You know, I, I don't even know if it's if it's even made the cut of what was originally a four-hour episode, but he, he was talking about Michael Mann being so specific on a Hawaiian shirt Jim Belushi's character in Thief, which is this big, it's a white shirt, it's got like these big flowing plants and greens and reds, and it's kind of iconic, and James Caan's standing on top of a rooftop wearing a yellow sweater, and it's just like, it's so, it's very, it's a very drippy movie, Thief, but he was just like, he, he said that this lady just brought countless rolls of fabric to man in countless different shirts, and he's like, no, no no it has to look like this no just over and again and she finally found the thing that he had in his mind's eye and he goes, yeah this one and he just very specific and especially on thief um uh, i have to credit another friend of our show Jed airs who says that james khan was born to dominate top buttons so i imagine if you're on thief the low zip hoodie with the chest hair out is just it's kinship with your star right because james khan the, the shoulder of, the shoulders on James the shoulders Khan. on uh, James Khan. he cannot a top button will never connect around his neck it's just not it's It doesn't hair stand a chance no it doesn't stand a chance uh out for the count so please, I, mean, I, I love
5: that oh no sorry I, I was just gonna say like I, that story that I hadn't heard about Belushi's Hawaiian shirt and the fabric I mean it has its corollary in one of the things that made its way into my piece so you know I was there with him for pre-production on Ferrari And so what I was essentially seeing, which, you know, I didn't know going into it, you sort of never know what you're going to get. But I was so happy that I got to see essentially, you know, about a dozen or so of the kinds of choices and sort of decisions that you're talking about specifically, actually, in the case of um, there's like one moment that made into the story where he's uh, trying to uh, uh, sort of lock in what the wallpaper is going to be in uh, Laura Ferrari, uh, Enzo's wife's apartment, um and they've got an actual shot of what the actual one was but because of sort of ip they're not sure if they can use that so the uh you know sort of art department has brought a bunch of alternatives and they're saying well you know we can make this and it's exactly what you just described he's saying no that's not it no that's not it it needs to have this and actually just yesterday i think or maybe two days ago on instagram uh, on the michael Mann official he actually posted a shot of that set and oh, that looks apartment like- of that apartment. And, and, and it's exactly the wallpaper that it, well, I don't know about exactly, but it looks pretty close to the original thing. So somehow they worked it out.
3: Please tell us what it's like to just be around him in pre-production. This is the thing that we always hear that he is one of the hardest working filmmakers around. He kind of goes into this mode, production mode, and maybe sleeps. We're hearing like four to two hours a night He's so on top of every department and every decision. And he's just, he's just like a whirlwind. And the people who work around him know that he's got massive expectations and they know they're in for long hours and they know, but they're like, he's here before us and he leaves after us. And we actually don't know when he sleeps and we're sleeping six hours a night and we have no idea how he does it. So can you please just tell us? Cause I'd, I'd be so interested and and just to ask like when you got this assignment were you a fan so and was that crazy
5: where should I start uh I guess I'll start I'll start with the 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 last question and by the time I'm done answering it I'll forget what you asked (laughs) and you can you can ask that again but maybe we'll hold it in we'll hold it in mind um yeah well no he's he's someone whose movies I, I have a very kind of clear memory of seeing the insider with my dad, Mm. uh, when that came out in the theater and both of us really loving it being blown away. Um, and in hindsight, the insider is in a certain, in certain ways, sort of an outlier, you know, sort of tonally. And in terms of subject matter, uh, in terms of things he's made, uh, off the top of my head, is it the only one besides Ferrari that actually has its roots in, you know, a real story? Um, The, the big uh, one, Ali, the, of course.
3: The, the big, the big one is Ali, yeah. Of course. And and, Ali. and, and he abandoned another project. We learn in the, to make the insider. He was just like he, the the story was more the real life story was more interesting. It <laughs> was friends oh, right. with yeah, some of the participants. He wanted something
5: else on Lowell Bergman, and then yeah. he's like, "Hang on, this other, right, right." But uh, yeah, so so sort of that's kind of when I I think I, I'd probably seen Last of the Mohicans before that and loved it, um, but I was sort of too young to really let it sink in. And so this memory of seeing the insider and really loving that and kind of remembering just the name Michael Mann, you know, on the screen. And for, you know, that sort of lodged in my brain there. And he's the kind of person that I, even when, uh, he's the kind of guy who's a lot of his movies I love. Some of them, I just love watching even. It's sort of both as a writer and kind of just an appreciator of a certain level of craft. He's the kind of guy where even if I don't kind of love a movie in a certain way, he's the kind of guy where I just want to re-watch them over and over and over again because there are things that, I, I guess it's a version of love or it's a different kind of love. Like Miami Vice would be, a, 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 the movie would be a classic version of this where the it, it took kind of four watches for me <laughs> to just kind of realize, and I think Bill gates wrote, wrote a great thing about this where he was kind of like, you need to realize that what you're watching is kind of a dream. You know, the, sort of, the, the, the way that man is going to tell this story is just going to behave in certain ways that if you're going into that movie, I don't know, expecting, I don't know, with, with too rigid a set of expectations, you might not sc- sort of receive just sort of like the brilliance of the weird choices that he makes and just kind of, why is the camera drifting like this? Why is it over there now? Why are these characters out of focus, etc.? So he's the kind of guy that, uh, all to say, um, I love so many of his movies uh, and I'm fascinated by all of them. And that's exactly the kind of person that I love writing about because there's a certain, you know, artist or, filmmaker specifically, who I might sort of love all their stuff, but I don't know exactly what I'm going to get out of a series of interviews with them. them. Uh, The last director I profiled before Man was David Fincher, who very similarly is the kind of guy who can tell you why everything in the frame is there. And that's a really fun person to write about, because without sort of demystifying anything, they're not sort of pulling the wings off the butterfly they sort of relate to what they do and all their choices in this highly systematized way. Um, And they'll tell you I'm using this lens because it connects to the themes that I want to explore in this movie in this way, you know, and they'll they'll sort of like just be able to sort of, I don't know, demystify um, sort of the creative process in a way that I like when I'm writing about anyone, but certainly when I'm writing about movie makers. And so I had this sort of dream in my mind that at a certain point, it'd be great to write about man. And over the last couple of years, I mean, your podcast, uh, both this one and the previous one is absolutely a part of this anecdotal sense that I got that I think there's sort of throughout his career there've been sort of waves of rediscovery of him and you know new generations kind of diving in and and kind of falling in love with him and that I don't know if it's the vagaries of like what HBO Max just puts on the on the homepage and suddenly 2 million <laughs> people have watched Miami Vice who hadn't seen it tonight exactly. before but it seemed like you know like there's this momentum building around him, you know, and like gifts of heat, you know, uh, circulating on it, you know, on, on Twitter, whatever it is, kind of getting the sense that the sort of, uh, I don't know, the the ground was being laid for another, you know, Michael Mann reappreciation.
3: To your piece though, I felt insane in 2000 and say 15, 16, when this idea just added to do it, Katie and I obviously became friends. We've started this show now a couple of years ago. So it feels kind of crazy, but even we marvel at the gifts and the memes and the (laughs) stuff. we're just like, a fire has been lit, and it's burning uncontrollably. <laughs> and we just check in on it from time to time. I'm like, wow, like it. Look at these kids; they're going absolutely nuts. It's so fun. We've even talked to the orchestrator of Manfax, a, a lot of it on the internet, and it's just like we don't even understand. And I'm like, I don't understand what you kids are doing, but holy shit, I love it. Just keep doing it. It makes it makes me smile every day when I go online. It's crazy
5: yeah and it's it's nothing like like, there's no hard data you can't you sort of have to just sort of point in all these different directions but you can't i mean who knows maybe you know you know hbo max probably has streaming numbers but it's like i don't know it's just this sense that sort of a zeitgeist thing is happening right yes
4: it's so funny when we i feel like we started the miami vice podcast like right before people were like you know really like latching onto miami vice or expressing their love for it and we I remember we posted the art for our podcast and we were like coming soon, Miami Nice, and my DMs lit up. It was like, oh my god, you're doing a Miami Vice podcast. Oh my God, I wanna <laughs> I wanna, you know, guest. I need to talk about this movie. And I was like, Whoa, what? Like I was not expecting this do do? <laughs> <What do you laughs> like do? reaction. You and I were just like, Hello, like, let's just have a funny podcast about Miami Vice and like drink mojitos and talk about this movie and kind of have a laugh. And then it's turned into this like sort of church of miami vice
3: yeah a confessional yeah a confessional
4: yeah the confessional
3: so you get a chance to talk to him obviously you talk to david someone like david fincher i think i love what you said there is because there are so many filmmakers who i think there's the there's kind of the great some great filmmakers like the i don't know they're kind of like I, i want to call them like magical like david lynch who, like yeah. doesn't seem to have all the choices like there's that great clip that's online everywhere and people use it like do it again but good you know like he's that kind of like he's not a michael manor david fincher and then there's someone like um you know the the great mark ruffalo story with dave fincher is like they're up to like take 36 or something like that and he walks past ruffalo and moves an extra and then walks back and taps mark on the a good job and he just goes back to the video <laughs> villaging Action (laughs) and Ruffalo's like it's not even me. I'm gonna kill myself. I don't know what's going on. Uh, But so you get to Michael Mann, obviously, and I think that you, based on your piece, and I've read it several times now, it's just the, I don't know. There's something tactile in the piece that you find is like Michael Mann in Europe makes sense. It like feels like there's like a whole community of people in the world who for the longest time have been like he's there, like. He's their American auteur. Like there's a huge French, you know, a uh, proponent of this as well. Jean-Baptiste Rey, he's like one of the best film critics and lecturers in France, has been a champion for years. He's like, screw Chris Nolan. Michael Mann's the greatest American <laughs> auteur. I don't care what you guys say. He, and so, so is that
5: uh, Mirage du Contemporain? My yes. horrible French accent. Yes. He wrote that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes, I, there's no English translation right now. Actually, no. we've got it. We're dying to an, for the English translation. <laughs> got to get an update. Actually, so nice. Uh, Michael Mann sent Bill Gobiri um, Mirage to Contemporary, and it like, but the French version, and Bill is like. I have to learn French to read this. Like, I, yeah. I like Michael probably learnt, knows French and knows multiple languages, but no, I don't t- know.
5: He, he's no. It's just funny. I know that because he sent it to me too. I think he at least really likes the images in it and sort of, but because there are these sort of great juxtapositions. It's not just
3: stills from man movies. So there's, there's a universal
5: language even if you don't know French
3: to so that book. Ooh. Oh, that's, again, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Yeah, no, I think uh, Jean Baptiste was particularly talking about the airport scene in Heat and the airport scene in Bullet and mm. saying so for if anyone you know he actually told us that on the show so yeah he's he's unbelievable he's writing on miami vice gravity the flux oh cool speaks for itself yeah if you've never yeah. read it you guys are listening to this show right now it's the first time listening um there is an episode with john Baptiste ray just type in gravity of the flux in your browser right now if you want to read one of the one of the truly best pieces of film criticism you'll ever get around to reading so you get this profile and you yeah. get to be the insider with man himself. You get to you get to go and visit his crazy method.
5: Yeah, so it was, I mean, essentially kind of getting this, sorry, st- step one, realizing or sort of deciding, boy, he'd be the kind of guy uh, who just sort of, whether or not a reader knows about him or cares about him, uh, it's the kind of guy where you're going to learn so much about filmmaking and kind of just all the decisions that go into making something good uh so deciding that getting this sense that there's you know between the gifts and your podcast and all these other little sort of data (laughs) points you know getting the sense that there's sort of of something zeitgeisty happening around him and then because a place like the new york times always wants a news peg uh the arrival of heat Two sort of offered that kind of quote-unquote news reason to do it um and actually sort of so the piece gets assigned man signs on to do it um in the context of the release of heat Two, and then it's sort of while we're kind of plotting out the reporting schedule that the financing comes together for Ferrari and suddenly instead of going down to Santa Monica to spend an afternoon with him, you know, at his office there, the pro- proposition becomes, do you want to come out to Modena where uh, they're uh. going to be shooting the the hometown of Ferrari and um, and it's going to be for, you know, pre-production. So, you know, part of you says, well, boy, it would be really fun to be there when they're shooting, you know, a scene from the Mille Amelia you know, one of these car <laughs> races. But actually, to your point, what wound up being really, uh, you know, sort of so much fun and I think lent the piece a lot of the texture that you're talking about was that he's in pre-production when it's things like the wallpaper, all those decisions are being made. And so they've commandeered this in- in- extremely, there was no drip to Katie's question, no drip to this office, the most like bland <laughs> sort of like fringes of Modena. It wasn't a beautiful building, just like, I think it was like a, the headquarters, like one floor was like the headquarters of some kind of regional chain supermarket. And they're on like the floor above that or something. Um, and they sort of commandeered this like very nondescript, you know, sort of drop ceiling, uh office space but what's so cool about it is the halls are lined with all these archival and scouting photographs from you know the marinello ferrari factory at the time the barbershop where uh, ferrari used to get his haircut in the 50s his apartment uh you know locations where the race was run and so you actually sort of walking you know shots of adam driver in ferrari's apartment uh so you're kind of walking through the movie in this sort of like very, you know, preparatory research kind of phase, you sort of walk through the entire movie because they've got it laid out physically, just, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos just lining the hallways. And so as you move around from office to office, you know, you're sort of walking through, you know, some of the raw materials for the movie. So I'm seeing all that, and I'm sort of tagging along with him. Uh, the, the scene that's in the piece is he's talking with location scouts uh, and production designers and art directors about essentially where they're going to shoot. Uh, you know, w- so much of Modena is unchanged, uh, and so it's sort of this wealth of opportunities for to kind of like, oh wow, the barbershop's still there, and the only thing that changes is the sign. Um, so sort of making all these decisions, but yeah, I mean, it, it 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 it's true. The wallpaper is one example that I really loved, where he's like. Yeah, you've given me five options and none of them do it because there's something about the sparseness and the weight of this green. That I need. Uh, so you're sort of like watching him kind of there. Then the really cool thing on some like geek shit, I wish I was more of a car geek. I would appreciate this even more. But they're rebuilding something like 9 to 11 actual Ferraris because they need to destroy them. And so if you got your hands on an actual you know, 1957 uh, I don't know, it's 250 worth, or whatever it's, it is. It's,
3: it's worth so many millions of dollars. <laughs> of course. <laughs> they'd they'd never they never insure it.
4: They would just, never insure it. It's not allowed. <laughs> so
3: yeah, the they're inside, rebuilding these cars. they are all got Toyota engines these cars because they're going to crash them <laughs> they're just building these, these beautiful husks around
5: them and you're seeing him i mean so here this is like a level of geekiness that i love in my reporting and i always have to realize like this actually probably is like a step way too geeky for uh the feature but one of the things i love about your podcast is like there's nothing no such thing as too geeky i mean no. sort of love what you guys are doing <laughs> You know, I've listened to a bunch of the episodes and I have to almost restrain myself from listening more because I would like lose maybe, you know, I don't know, a year of my life just listening <laughs> to them over and over again because like I listened to, yeah, I've listened to a few of them, but like that one with the sound, the, the sound designer uh, who's worked on his stuff. Like, I love that. And I just sort of love what you guys are doing with this project where you can just fall down these rabbit holes as deep as you want. Um, but yeah, so so he he goes to talk to the people who are essentially in charge of overseeing the recreation of these cars. So they're doing full 3D body scans of the actual Maseratis and Ferraris that competed in the race that the movie centers around. Uh, and he's talking he's got sort of spreadsheets about logistics because they, I mean, it's, it's staggering when you think about the enterprise and, and what I'm about to say is multiplied like a dozen times over across a production as enormous as a Michael Mann movie but like these, these cars are getting made in the UK. They need to be shipped over to Italy. There's customs questions. So they've like, everything has been sort of scheduled down to within an inch of its life because it's a well-oiled machine, right? No pun intended. And so there's all these spreadsheets about, okay, this car is going to, this car is going to be done on this date. And in the meantime, man is saying, okay, but hang on when I was shooting collateral and you know, with the, the taxi cab and when I was shooting Miami vice with the go fast boats, we realized, uh, sort of too late kind of when we were shooting that there are all these kinds of problems about heat sensors on cameras and if they're too close to the exhaust on a vehicle or they're not kind of on springs to deal with vibration you have all these problems so he's telling them right now this is the stage where we're not only recreating Ferraris but we actually have to redesign them to accommodate uh, sound and light boards and cameras and all this shit and the guys who he's working with are like oh yeah right hadn't thought of that (laughs) Uh, so again like I'm saying like I love that kind of thing Yeah. at a certain point I think a reader's eyes might glaze over uh, and i just have to focus on his ombre shirt you know <laughs> like that but, but but you know just to give you a sense you know and then a, a kind of a more lively thing that made its way into the thing is uh, he was so generous with me because he's sort of you know he's a, he's common during this ship but he still sort of like would turn to me and kind of do a little sidebar and sort of explain okay w- w- what i'm what i'm doing is x y and z right now this is what you're seeing and one of those things was he was just saying you know Look, these details, like the wallpaper, whatever it is, not sort of technical details, but aesthetic details, are so important because they all go into the ultimate effect. I mean, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, but the ultimate effect that, are, that a viewer, consciously or not, is going to take away from this thing. Uh, and he talks about uh, uh, doing the set design and set decoration on Manhunter and how getting the kitchen chair right for Francis Dollarhide's home. you know <laughs> And he's like telling whoever was working on that, like, no, this kitchen chair is not crazy enough.
4: I know I love that quote like find me a psychotic kitchen chair and I'm like god what does a psychotic what kitchen section chair of Ikea even... do
3: I go to for I the psychotic ch- kitchen chair
4: but I absolutely love the lead that you went with for the piece which was a I found you know illuminating in a lot of ways because it's illuminating in his attention to detail which is about the the rhythm of the windows in the Ferrari factory and they need to go like do 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 and then break or something you know whatever it is I, I have the piece up I can pull the quote but the fact that he's so attention to detail oriented but that it is all about what the eye is doing for the viewer and so I that's something I would I was like wow that's fascinating to hear him talk about that but it also it was like Revealing all of these different things about him, not only as a technician, but as an artist and as someone whose films ultimately are about affect and feeling and emotion and as technically perfect as they are.
5: Well, no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, because, right. I think one thing that's embodied there is one of the things that really I find sort of endlessly fascinating about man, because it's almost I mean, it verges on paradox sometimes sort of this exacting attention to realism, you know, uh, that sort of has to come into a certain tension and compromise with artistry, right? And sort of saying, you know, at, at a certain level, when do I decide that the way that the windows were arranged on the actual Ferrari factory in 1957 is sort of insufficiently musical, you know, and and, <laughs> and where can I, as Michael Mann, sort of, you know, sort of bend what it actually was? And, you know, I mean, his sense, again, as we've established, it's only the third time that he's done something situated in real life. But I think it's true. He wants that veracity in any story he tells um and so the the question is sort of like when do you become when do you risk becoming sort of hidebound by a slavish sort of devotion to accuracy uh to the degree that sort of you know hampers artistry and that's just something that he does so well and it can make the movies just feel so strange because yeah there is this sort of blend of the the absolutely earthbound and then the kind of hallucinatory um or you know i don't know the expressionistic uh and and that little moment you know kind
3: of gets at that
4: yeah absolutely
3: it's it's something as simple as, you know, a lot of people have been talking about Thief recently. But it was like um, Quentin Tarantino actually, finally, in an interview for his podcast, they were talking about another Man movie, and he's like, the influence of my. They're both acclaiming uh, uh, the influence of Michael Mann. They go, it, the the one big thing, just to such a small detailing. I think it goes to the dreamlike quality, the shooting in Chicago. And man, as a young man had grown up and taken photos and that kind of, the the spark of this creativity, this like unconscious thing of like wanting to be a filmmaker, but not realizing he wanted to be a filmmaker, is just walking around his hometown, taking shots and creating these evocative images. And he's like, I don't know, didn't know what he was doing. Thought he might want to be a photographer, or an artist. And then he's like, oh no, I want to make films. And so even something as small as everyone who's watched Thief will marvel at the kind of insane neon reflections of thief car lights street lights the whole the The wet the the wet wet wet, cement wet 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 cement and they're just like if there's one tiny thing not only how influential he's been it's like michael mann relentlessly wet the streets of chicago when he was shooting it just at night just wet them constantly never raining just wet like wet down the streets and like every filmmaker after 1982 is like man that looks amazing why does that look so amazing It's just wet the streets because he wanted more uh, options for the light to reflect off of it. and it's just like that's the dream it's like i'm here in the spot that i want to shoot it i'm on this very specific you know chicago street i'm on this thing doesn't look right i need to maintain the dream and the dream is the wet streets and then that just gives it this eerie quality this elevated thing and you know sometimes it's with music or visuals or those little aspects but i just think that's what's that's what's kind of shocking, because usually you meet super creative people, but they're not very good at a spreadsheet. Yeah. Michael Mann is like a king of a spreadsheet and the king right. of that specific, like that level of specificity. And then also will be like, no, I don't like the rhythm of windows. Like that's yeah. why he's such a wonderful and like boundlessly interesting person and filmmaker, because the, 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 he can do it. He can seemingly do it all. And and it's um and, and again, you, you mentioned Fincher as well, but that's the kind of guy like Fincher technical guy worked in industrial light and magic knows all this you know Soderbergh edits caters you know <laughs> drives the bus for his own movies like these there's some of these characters that just like seemingly can do absolutely every aspect of the filmmaking and really attend to them in with, with as much care as they do i think that it just it, they just become so fascinating because like how are they doing how are they keeping ahead of all of this It's funny you mentioned Soderbergh, too, because one
5: of one of the most fun things about reporting that Fincher piece was I got on the phone with Soderbergh to talk about them because, you know, they're friends and they show each other cuts of their movies and things like that. And I mean, two interesting things I'd have to bring up the piece to remember the exact quotes from Soderbergh. But one was I asked him, what's your favorite Fincher movie? And he said, without hesitating, uh, Panic Room which was, you know, a, a, <laughs> a, a rare, a rare choice, uh, no, no disrespect to Panic Room, but it's just sort of not, you know, uh, in most people's, you know, uh, top three for Fincher, but he's like, he was like, he's like, because the degree of sort of difficulty, sort of the challenge. And it's funny cause actually collateral, I'm sure you've gotten into this, but sort of collateral collateral functions similarly, for man where he's sort of done something enormous and then he's like you know what I want to do something very small and contained and then realizes oh no no this was a mistake this is actually so much harder to sort of paint <laughs> you know try and paint within such a rigid constraint but, you know Soderbergh is saying just like the, the, the level of difficulty that he set out uh, making a movie like Panic Room uh, just like I think something like give, give me a panic Attack, you know myself, just trying trying to envision making that movie, and so part of it is him being kind. But I think that there's sort of like a level of exactitude with even Fincher that Soderbergh is like, bro, I can't I can't be there oh, with you. Like,
3: <laughs> I think it might even be in your piece that I quote to people all the time, which is like, he because they ha- share the same floor of the same office building, and he just walks next door and they hang out because they're close friends. He's like, sometimes I've gone into his editing suite, and he's just like, they're looking at a hundred cuts, and he's like, no, I can see the camera, like. For any human being, except him, the camera imperceptibly, like, slows on the track just for a second. He goes, that's no, no, a bump in the track. Next. That's no, a bump I, in the track. Absolutely. And, and Soderbergh's, like, have, hyperventilating. He's like, I've got to go. i got to exactly. go. This is too stressful. You stress me out. To compare
5: Fincher and Mann, because they both have this sort of level of sort of technical, uh, you know, sort of exactitude. Um, Fincher, though, is so much more interested in perverts than Man is, you know, like sort of perverts show up in man stuff and kind of like Wayne Grove character, uh, the Wardell character in Heat 2, if you guys have read that. And they're kind of aberrant and they're sort of you can tell he's sort of icked out by them and they represent the sort of chaos that Man really does not want to let into you know, sort of his universe, you know, it's sort of, it's the, the anti-Macaulay, you know, Macaulay and Hannah, obviously are just sort yeah. of like have this kinship. Um, and Wayne Gros is sort of this aberrant perversion, whereas like in Fincher movies, it's all Wayne grows, you know, <laughs>
4: <laughs> that is such a good point. That is such a good point. I had never thought about, but like, I always say that man movies are like, I mean, in the dumbest way possible man do job good. And like, and, and you talk about him. You know that directors make films about circuits for themselves, and you know people who are professionals and engineers and you know there is a, a a balance between the perfectionism and the romanticism of man in in his uh protagonists, especially, and I think that's the balance that we love and crave the the juxtaposition between that mm. but um but so it is really funny <laughs> it's like oh aberrant perverts but or even the 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 guy in Manhunter um absolutely uh, yeah 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 I can never remember his name um one thing I was going to say going back to the Fincher and man of it all I love the quote you include from Nolan in the piece which is you feel like you're watching a film about experts made by experts and that's like a feeling that I crave in especially in re-watching films I I love the feeling of being held <laughs> by a film mm-hmm. like I'm like I know that I'm in good hands. I love how I'm holding myself (laughs) right now, but that's the feeling that I crave is like, I want to know I'm in good hands. I want to know I'm in the hands of a professional or like, and even if I don't know what's going on, like that they know what's going on. And so I will find out eventually, I don't know. It's a sensation that I really need in a movie (laughs) that like this person knows what they're doing.
5: and I'm, I was—I think—I think about that both as an as an audience member, but also actors. Like when you're sort of on set, when you can't—you know—you're not seeing the edit, you're not seeing the finished thing. Think about the trust there, like just in terms oh of being God. in good hands.
4: Um, yeah. 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 And that—that that they will draw a good performance out of you no matter what. Probably your best.
5: <laughs> Can we? Are we in a safe space for a con- for an embarrassing confession? Absolutely. This might be oh, the actually yeah, the least the, the least safe space for the confession I'm about to make. But in that quote that you <laughs> that you talk about from Christopher Nolan, uh, mm-hmm. he's that I mean I love that quote right. Experts move about experts made by experts. He's talking about um, the the this tiny detail in the bank. which i have seen heat uh maybe i don't know shy of 10 times uh, you know which so, is a
3: lot of times it, to see a movie it's okay but blake
4: has seen it a lot <laughs> yeah
3: i've seen it a few a lot, times a few times and what the i would just detail? say to you is, oh, sorry. It's, uh, it's okay some people scared, are like you blake, know where i'm going so, so some people are like Blake. i've, I've seen I've, I've i've seen it you know three times i'm like it's fine i'm an i mean i'm a lunatic it's fine <laughs> You know, I share uh, your lunacy. I mean, I sort of, <laughs> especially
5: when I'm researching a piece, I, I watch movies multiple times. You know, by the way, side note: what I really love doing um, is watching movies with the commentary, not for the obvious reason of kind of getting the commentary, but for watching the sort of storytelling happen without any dialogue and sort yeah. of seeing what the cameras doing. But anyway, so I'd seen Heat, you know, x number of times, and I had and this is just my sh- shameful confession uh, from Miami Nice. I had never actually consciously noticed the detail. That sold that entire sequence for Christopher Nolan, which is Kilmer. I mean, I'd sort of seen this motion happen, but I'd never clocked the sort of significance uh, until Nolan sort of pointed my attention to it, which is they're in the bank vault, in the bank heist, and all, you know, the stacks of $100 bills or whatever are kind of in these, you know, large bricks, uh, sort of that are shrink wrapped. And um, Kilmer in the vault. Uh, wraps a duffel bag over the brick, flips it over, but then takes a you know a, a, an Exacto blade or whatever it is, slashes the plastic and bangs the bag so that the dollars is the brick of dollars will fall out of the kind of the rigid rectangle and take the shape of the bag. And maybe it's because I've never thought about robbing a bank or something, <laughs> but sort of like that, the the, the absolute sort of like zeroed in minuscule sort of reality of if you're a thief no this bag's got to go over my shoulder so i've got to cut this plastic so that i'm just anyway nolan had sort of identified something that i had just totally missed i don't think that's
4: over an over embarrassing again. confession no,
3: thank you that's, that's you need a
4: better that, you need a more embarrassing one
3: way more embarrassing because
4: i had it that was that was a revelation to me too
5: i mean i guess that speaks to to say something sort of trite but true about men that speaks to the sort of like the layers and layers and layers of what's going on you know even in a scene that we've rewatched on youtube you know 20 times
3: it's it's funny that when i first finished high school as like a personal anecdote i was working in a dvd and at that time vhs distribution warehouse so it was the end of vhs was moving into dvd and i worked in the factory and I picked up that scene because I used I used to be a guy who used to hand shrink wrap these big pallets of flat cardboard boxes, and also when you were taking apart stuff, you you had that little exacto knife in your pocket. You lived in your pocket. Right. And in fact, you had to sometimes like get different pairs of shorts because you forget to close <laughs> your exacto knife, and it would just cut straight through your pocket, and you'd lose it down the, down <laughs> your, your your pant leg. But it was like I, I just remember that bit. I'm just like, oh, of course, because it's so like. You can turn this big, like easily, you know, a, a huge, six feet high, you know, pallet full of cardboard boxes. If you don't shrink wrap that bad boy, you can push it and the whole thing just cascades and falls down like crazy. But if you shrink wrap it, it is a brick. <laughs> like you, right. like you can run at it and it would. You could hit it and bounce off it and fall onto the floor. So it's funny how they those little things clock. But yeah, exactly. Like that's one minuscule second of that momentous scene. Um, but it doesn't surprise me Nolan. And
5: He's... you start and you start wondering like did, how did that even get get into the movie? Like where does that come from? And is it is it, you know, a bank robber who consulted on it? At what point does man tell Kilmer to do it? Is it Kilmer's idea? And there's just like a zillion of these questions. You well, know, his it's
3: because they were robbing that bank that day, and, and Chris <laughs> Shehill, is okay. Val Kilman, just had an exacto knife. He needed to get yeah. that money on his shoulder. You, no one will ever convince me they didn't take thirteen million that day. Um, uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for the budget, they just took that extra thirteen million. Oh man, it's um, but yeah. So let's get to uh, just, and I think your piece does this so well. Stomping around the streets with Michael Mann. Let's go back. Let's circle back to his fashion. Let's circle back to the textures of Having Italy. Having
4: wine at lunch.
3: Wine at lunch. Wondering. Oh my man. God! A man
5: after my own heart. If anyone yes. wants to just sort of have a good interview with me, propose wine at lunch. I love that
4: you include that in the piece where he's like, glass of wine. Like I just, it was a fun. I always, I like to think about the way profiles work and the editing process. I'm sure there was a lot that hit the cutting room floor on your piece, but I like, I like to, uh, to look at the pieces, the the details that make it in and how they affect the the feeling of reading it.
5: Well, I, mean, I, I can probably answer both the, I mean, speak to what you just said and to what Blake just asked, but like part of the reason that that's in there, I mean, it's this tiny little moment, but one thing that I really liked, and this might be about sort of a certain intimidation on my part that I brought to the reporting experience before I was with him, I was like, this is a guy with an extreme suffers no fools kind of aura around him and so yeah. i want to do my do my best to not be a fool um and so partially for that reason and i'll get into kind of how that manifested in some of the interactions that i saw in the pre-production office but just that little wine moment was uh one moment and i think there's some others in the piece where it's kind of me relaxing a little once i realized that um He's a pretty easygoing kind of funny guy and warm guy. He's like very mentally, he's sort of generous. And it could be, you know, I I caught him on a good day. Obviously, I'm not a reporter. Uh, Excuse me, I'm a reporter. I'm not like an employee of his. So, uh, you know, that's going to change behavior in certain ways. But I was really happy with sort of like this kind of looseness. You know and that was on a saturday too so he was probably chilling out a little bit as well after his work week he was probably really looking forward to that wine he's probably going to be pissed if i said no um, <laughs> yeah. but he was but there was a sense of like warmth and easygoingness and kind of a sense of humor about him um that i wanted to kind of get in the piece and you know that that wine moment is a tiny little you know kind yeah, of yeah it, it does warm
4: him up a bit and um not that i wouldn't expect him to be warm but yeah we talk a lot about his exacting nature and stuff so it's nice to see those moments where he lets his hair down
3: what was the, the worst? oh god
5: you know it's in it's in my transcript i'd have to look it up i'm not i'm not a big enough wine dude to know
3: Um, well we're gonna get it and i think katie and i in honor of this chat we're gonna have to just swill it maybe at the next uh at the at at one of our next shows one of our next live streams uh, swordfish and wine (laughs) swordfish and wine
5: um and so yeah so he you know he's sort of very warm and and maybe by that point to also it's sort of I always love doing, you know, uh, Blake, the the three of us were talking, you know, just before you recorded and you were talking about kind of how I agree with you, how cool of a job it is in its, you know, most ideal version uh, to just spend time in orbit with people making things. I love, generally speaking well, A, just to watch work happen uh, whenever I do a profile. It's the, it's the number one thing I always ask sort of whether, whatever intermediary I'm talking to you about sort of negotiating access, I say I really want to watch work happen. And one of the reasons that I like doing that is it decreases the amount of kind of writerly bullshit that I need to bring to a piece because sort of we've all read these profiles that you know a writer uh, through no fault of their own had very limited access to. It's, it's a junket, it's an interview at a hotel or whatever it is. And they've got to sort of, I mean, this is an example that I always repeat, but they've got to like pretend that the way that this person holds their salad fork at the hour-long lunch that they were at is somehow a window into their soul. Uh, And I kind of, I, (laughs) I, I I don't know. I recoil at that. It's nice that he ordered wine, and that says a little something, but i don't know is that a window into his soul not really so i love seeing work happen love seeing creative decisions happen and there i think he was in a good mood a because it was saturday but also just because i'd been in his orbit i just sort of like i wasn't an unfamiliar quantity because the day before i'd been with him at the pre-production offices and i do think that it, it was sort of interesting to see it was only a few hours that i spent with him following him around um you could kind of see a degree of, I don't want to say fear exactly, but an apprehensiveness on the part of a lot of his collaborators about kind of Living up to his standards, you know, and you could just sort of see that in sort of very minuscule ways. Um, but you know, the, the the it was the first time that while I was there, it was the first time that the people in charge of like the photo vehicles, so all the kind of period, you know, there's a train in the movie, not just the race cars, but like Enzo Ferrari's personal Peugeot or whatever it is, or you know, street cars in the back of a scene, all those sort of like vehicles for, for for photography. The team that was sort of charged with presenting him with those options, they hadn't met with him yet. It was his first time meeting them, and. And you could just sort of see the stage fright that these guys were doing their presentation, essentially, to a very demanding CEO. uh, And he's just saying, this car doesn't work. This car doesn't work. This one's great. And he's also, I mean, one of these brains that's so nuts because he's sort of talking about the, I I don't have this brain at all. So I'm going to botch what I'm about to say, but to give some flavor, he's talking about like the combustion engines. He's like, no, that Peugeot wouldn't work because it's this kind of engine and Ferrari's tooling around town. I mean, sort of like the level of expertise that he's even bringing to things like that was so funny. But yeah, you kind of got this sense of a certain apprehensiveness and there were a few times where I could see there was a bit of a language barrier. A lot of the crew is Italian where man would kind of repeat something a fourth time and the collaborator wasn't getting it. I, oftentimes, because of something as innocent as sort of a language barrier and you could see man just sort of like, you could see the patience diminishing. <laughs> um, not that he ever got sort of rude or anything like that. Certainly not in front of me. He he might do it, you know, and, and there may be stories out there, uh, you know, certainly when it's like when the clock is ticking on production. But I, mean, I would imagine that would to, be with like,
3: someone he's got a relationship with. If, if yeah. they weren't up to the standard, work with him. Because these guys, all, all women, filmmakers who are out there have a crew. Mm-hmm. Like they assemble their high screw to pull off this movie. That's, that's what they right. do. And you have the people that you trust and, and, and you like, can
5: see it. Like Janice Polly, the location yeah. scout on this, one. sorry, uh, location manager. It goes back to the last of the Mohicans, right? You like, yeah. you find your people and that's, your, you find your, no, I'm Chirito not, going, any, and I'm not going,
3: I'm not going anywhere else. And mm-hmm. then, then if there's a, someone that works with them. Katie, do you remember the acronym that Jaffet told us Colin's, um, assistant when he, Michael asked him to go and take some photos and. The acronym. Ba- there was an acronym, like a small, like a, an acronym that he was using when he asked Jaffa, it was one of the assistants. He goes, oh, you're from, because he, he was a local for Miami Vice. And he's like, oh, I, I live, I'm a local. I know this town or I know this thing. And he goes, oh, can you go take some photos? And so he just went to take like very bland, you know, photos, no composition, no thought of light, no angles, nothing. And he brings them back in the office and Michael just like scribbles on the corner of the photo printouts like bad photo or like terrible like he's just like oh i can't remember like do better on the next (laughs) do better on the next one and like because eventually what i started to get is that much like the experience of this kind of living collage of an office that you're walking through this kind of um uh, like almost like a michael mann zoetrope of a movie as you walk Mm. through it um but i just imagine that like even for those location scouts it's like give me something this give me the cinema of the shot to give to, to to inflame my inspiration so yeah it's funny but michael mann working with a whole crew over in europe with more freedom outside of the bubble of a like los angeles feels right to me that feels awesome it's like he's just dispatched them let's go let's go come on
5: and it's going to be i mean it's just i mean it's fucking nuts how enormous of a production this is going to be and it's sort of like these are movies that don't get made very much anymore you know sort of at this scale and telling this kind of story i mean the other thing is i i was thinking about it i mean i to the degree that you guys are curious in talking about sort of Ferrari, it, it might be in certain ways the kind of closest surrogate for man in, in some regards of any character that he's, you know, kind of built the movie around because sort of you have, I mean, in a way that's relevant to sort of someone like Frank and Thief or Neil Macaulay, he's an engineer and he has that engineer mindset. But specifically here, it's about sort of commanding. Well, actually, no, I guess there's some other parallels with Macaulay, but sort of commanding a crew. Uh, sort of to pull off something very elaborate in the pursuit of your vision. I mean, that's sort of Ferrari through and through. Um, And without spoiling anything, there's one moment in the script, uh, the Ferrari script. This is not a spoiler. I won't ruin anyone's enjoyment, where it's a tiny little moment where Ferrari is just looking at a schematic of a car engine and there's a right angle in in the schematic. And he just takes a pencil and he just makes it a bend. And he says the more it's more beautiful and it's more efficient that way. And I I don't know if that's kind of a line that man wrote or if that's in Troy Kennedy Martin's original script, but it's so perfect that it's in there (laughs) because you have that sense like it's both more efficient and more beautiful to just have this line curve rather than have it be a right angle. Um, So yeah, I don't even know why I brought this up other than like Ferrari was an interesting project to sort of see man really get rubbed up about. And that's before I even knew that he used to be a race car, amateur race car driver himself.
4: He has so many levels of expertise. It was like kind of shocking. I'm like, even listening it, it, the details in the piece about him understanding the engines and the way that they sound and these like archival recordings <laughs> of these engines. Like, I'm like, this guy knows so much about so much. It's nuts. Like, and and even just what you're talking about now. But it, and it is interesting to sort of start thinking about the parallels between him and Ferrari and, why he might be drawn to a character such as this.
0: Yeah, Um,
5: totally. Oh, and I'm sorry, before I forget, because it it was the first thing you mentioned and Blake brought it up again, white sneakers, white jeans. Yes. Uh, I'm doing a full bottom-up fit check for Michael Mann (laughs) in in, in Italy. It was a very summertime in Italy kind of outfit. Yeah, these like white echo, kind of like golf sneakers actually, I looked them up. white jeans and then yeah this kind of like very strange shirt that was like three different colors at once sort of amazing
4: (laughs) I love the white jeans and the crazy shirt um but I also was going to say about his crew like I think someone in our discord mentioned that he's working with like an all-new crew like he's never worked with Eric Messerschmidt the DP before I think the um the editor is a new person so it's also interesting that it's going to be like a completely new so kind of getting used to each other and i'm sure i it makes sense that all of the italian crew would be like a little bit nervous you know because he he demands a level of perfection and i don't think that's a bad thing i think that's like step up come on step up to the level and and uh that i'm bringing and and that is such a rare quality all the time
5: there was this one funny moment to that point when he was in this meeting with the people who are sort of choosing the cars, not the Ferraris, but sort of, you know, the, the ones I mentioned before, they're gonna kind of populate, you know, the backgrounds of scenes and things like that. And he tells them, so, you know, watch some movies, w- watch some Italian movies from the 50s uh, and 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 get a sense for the percentage of how many bicycles, delivery trucks, uh, and sedans are in the back. He's like, I think it's gonna be mostly bicycles and pedestrians, some delivery trucks, not that many cars. And one, it's like a young Italian guy who's who's talking with him. And he says, oh, oh so, you know, so, so like look at Fellini movies. And man, I was like, no, no, no. no. De Sica,
3: you know, like, come on, <laughs> come on.
4: He's like, watch uh, all the De Sica movies and count the bicycles. Exactly. Go. Not <laughs> Fellini. Fellini's
3: a dream. Go Rome exactly. open <laughs> city, baby. Bicycle <laughs> v, that's
4: what you want to see. I don't want maybe I'm impu-
5: imputing some disdain into the response, but I was like, bro, Fellini, come on.
4: Uh, we have to educate the children.
3: That's Mm -hmm. if we do nothing except educate here, (laughs) but I think what's fascinating is, and I think this is, it's the confluence of two projects. And I think it's what, I think you got it Jonah in your piece is, and I think maybe Katie, this is me just sort of hypothesizing, but I think maybe that's what it is with Ferrari with a new crew is because when I spoke to man for one heat minute, they what we know now is obviously they're in the depths of doing that iteration of Heat 2. Completely different writer, co-writer was working with him at the time before May Gardiner. They'd been working on it for roughly seven years, what we understand. So this is, you know, going back now, uh, to 2015, 16 ish, um, from when it was originally sort of kicking around, which is weird. Like the universe was just sort of, it was all happening. It'd been working out to this point. And what our crew of people have got is, you know, and again, some of our amazing people, our amazing listeners. And if you you don't, you need to get on our Patreon so you can come join the Discord chat. We might get we might just give Jonah a freebie so he can come in and talk to us anytime he wants to talk Mandarin. But um, our fans point out that this Ferrari script in so many different iterations or alterations, bigger scale, smaller scale, etc., trying to be made over the years, has been gestating for like 20 years. And so I feel like that might give man the confidence because he's so sure of the material. Like I I remember a couple of friends um, remarking after listening to the man interview that I did going, man, how is this stuff so vivid in his brain? Like, how does he remember this? And what you then can realize is like, oh, he's been pouring through his own personal archive of his, his experience to draw on for his creativity. And so you get to something like Ferrari and it's like, it's been living, it's probably been up in pre-production and then down and then up and then down and then up and then another project pushes it out of the way. See ya, collateral, here we go. You know, like wherever the finance was breathing, people confident, not confident If him doing bigger projects, Ali successful, okay, we're going to do Ferrari. No, it's collateral and then vice and then whatever. So what I really think is fascinating, but also like kind of heartening is like some folk who might go, oh, Ferrari, that's a bit strange. It's like, it's this is a project that he has persisted and so you know all that stuff about the engines and this and i want you to look at this i want you to look at that this much these must be thoughts that are just pouring out of him whereas if you're looking at him and you're like oh my god this guy's like a savant he probably kind of is but i think that living with something for 20 years and being so sure about it it's like oh you know this is this is the perfect time you're at the tip of the spear i've got the confidence i can take a new crew with the confidence I can shoot it on locations. I've got the confidence to do it because I've literally been living with it and agonizing about why it hasn't been made for 20 goddamn years. So I imagine that that's like, that's the point that you're seeing him, which is just unbelievable. It's the best possible outcome.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was, uh, yeah. And and that's the, it's also, he had this insight uh, into that character. I mean, talk about things that he's been living with for, for years. He raced Ferraris in an amateur capacity, in the, I think it was the 90s or so, I'd have to double check the piece, but he said, I sort of learned something um, in, there's a quote where he says, essentially kind of like, you'll be sort of doing laps and there, there might be, you know, you're doing 70 laps and on, uh, lap number 68 you just put together on on a level of sort of like sort of it's not muscle m- muscle memory but in a kind of pre-conscious way you just put together the right sequence of turns and you feel totally integrated you and the car are one uh in a non-trite in an actual way just sort of because you know thing could kill you right so you're you're going however many miles an hour and he said that gave me this insight into this character uh who sort of is comfortable making unilateral decisions because he's sort of known from his youth, this sort of sense of an absolute sort of integrated eye. And that's, I mean, that's an archetypal man protagonist in a lot of ways, the sense of a person who makes unilateral decisions because they really have such strong knowledge of self. But yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, that was just one example, of sort of riffing off what you just said, that like, he's sort of had that knowledge of, boy, you know, if you if you took a character who's a race car driver, um, you know, they they would kind of relate to the world and to other people, maybe in this slightly, I don't know, solipsistic way because of that experience that I remember having behind the wheel of the Ferrari. Um, Oh, by the way, um, just a really tiny thing that uh, I don't know if you guys have already talked about Heat 2 as it relates to Miami Vice, but I was just so stoked to geek out for two seconds with you guys about how the Shuida del Este stuff that, of course, winds up being such a small part of Miami Vice uh became this whole section in heat two uh, i don't know if katie's
3: that... uh, have we read have you read that yet katie katie oh, okay. hasn't read it I haven't i've not read it I, yet you so... can spoil
4: it it's okay no,
5: well no, no, no. it's not not even a spoiler just the yeah. section takes place.
3: It's but that's so cool setting. yeah it's a huge setting it feels like um if you were looking for the connective tissue between Chris hairless also this is the commonality colin farrell val kilmer the hottest people alive in their in their day, you know. Can <laughs> yes. we just say like Val Kilmer '95, Colin Farrell '2006, as hot as it gets. I know, um, and 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 just you know, dripping with cool and hotness and mystique and all that stuff. But yes, she had a um, she had a Del Este that there's it's a, it forms the setting of like an entire segment of heat too. And so when you're reading it, if you're a Miami Vice fan, you're like, oh, this is my shit. This is I'm, and, I'm, and yeah, it's, it's it.
5: all research that he did for Miami Vice, so that's a, another cool thing. It's sort of like it didn't make its way into that movie, but it's still in his head. It's there. It's there. and it's gonna make its way into another project, hopefully, right? And and that's one case where it, where it actually does. He's he was talking about you know months that they spent doing social engineering in this you know lawless sort of you know tri-border city, um, where really just like capitalism at its most ruthless. You know, there's like no street crime because street crime is illogical. You know, it's sort of bad for business when there's when there's murders in this <laughs> town. It's because someone was fucking with someone else's money and you know that's it and he spends all this time there and then it's like i think it's distilled into almost like one shot of just like all the styrofoam through like a car oh it's it's
3: it's a couple of styrofoam streets shots like late at night with um uh jesus montoya archangel de jesus montoya walk like uh driving his car and it's the it's the USB flash drive for um, Jose Euros. So um, John Ortiz's character, like it's just a couple of people transporting a USB flash drive to do sophisticated counter Intel is like all you see. And it was meant to be, you know, the centerpiece of, uh, you know, the ending of the film.
4: But that those couple of shots feel so informed and lived in and authentic. And when you listen to the commentary, you can hear him talk about all the research he did on, and like, and we talk about this on the podcast sometimes, like, that he will be like so dedicated to like like you said the windows and and especially in Miami Vice it's like the street art and the murals he's like everything is perfect and from a specific place and transported to another place and um all in service of something and deeply deeply researched so that's awesome i'm excited i, I got the audiobook of heat too so i'm excited to listen Who's to Who's reading it. it i wonder someone named peter giles
3: okay peter i wonder what his <laughs> is like i gotta i gotta listen I, i'm I just i'm just keen to listen i actually I, i've I re- read it a few times now I'm yeah just...
4: It, it, i just thought it would be a fun way to take it in but yeah
5: i People saw a him- tweet i can't speak to this but it's someone was comparing the 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 narrator of the audiobook to the the very sort of like archetypal in a world
3: <laughs> oh my god i can't wait <laughs> oh
5: god could be could be perfect could be could, perfect could be perfect yeah. Chris Shaherless powers up to a Las Vegas casino. I, I feel I'm, like
4: there's a lot of Chris Shaherless um love on the timeline right now, which I'm happy to thirst. see.
3: There's a lot of Chris
4: <laughs> It might just be all of Roxana Hadadi's tweets, which I but, definitely appreciate, but which, there's a lot of Val love out there, which I'm always in support of.
3: And excellent. And the same sentiment that I had is like. It's so exciting that they're going to make a movie. Man has already said, in actually an interview with GQ, that you know Katie and I were fearful. Jonah, like, please for the love of God, don't do digitally de aging. It's it's just it, oh, it yeah. is it feels antithetical to his incredible. I don't know. He's there's something about it that rabid believability of authenticity that is in his films that i'm just like if you put yeah. a digital mask some people it's just gonna hurt what's gonna happen so we're like cast it and my my thoughts are always like look if you go to a contemporary example moonlight which won best picture which is an absolutely outstanding film had three actors playing the same character and it was fine we all mm-hmm. understood audiences are not stupid it's fine we got it. we get it they also recast marlon brando in the godfather part two if marlon brando can be recast it's fine okay they found a kid they found a kid named robert de niro at the time (laughs) turned out (laughs) to be pretty good but i'm just saying like it's it's patently ridiculous for anyone to go no they can't recast it oh
4: my god they'll do an extensive casting process and i'm thrilled to see who they choose
3: no i'm just like but it's so tough to think of who's that yeah who's got that val Kilmer 95 blonde hair dangerous sexy cold it's, it's, a, it's a tough hang to be in that audition room because Michael Mann's going to be like, nope, not it. Nope, not it. Nope, not it. Nope, not it. By yeah. the way, to that point,
5: the one thing that sort of one question that I have uh, sort of along similar lines, um, having not seen House of Gucci, but having seen a lot of people make fun of it, uh, this notion, this kind of classic notion of uh, actors speaking in English, but with Italian accents to play Italian people, if there's one director who's going to, I don't know, like play um, Adam Driver, a bunch of footage of maybe Enzo Ferrari speaking Italian with, uh, excuse me, speaking English with an Italian accent and getting him to lock that in. It's going to be Michael Mann who can do that. But that is one question mark, isn't it? It's a, it's oh a no, Driver was
3: great. He's Italian. Like you, you haven't seen, it. Katie and I have seen House, House of I've Gucci.
4: seen House of Gucci like three times. I'll talk about it for hours. Uh, so I love it. <laughs> on, the br-
3: on the brief digression is he's fantastic. Like Driver's, I mean, He's a fantastic actor. I think that actor. movie's great. He's a fantastic I actor. It. No, I, I like it. I I'm like, ready to love it. I like you a should lot. T- of it. You, should, you, should,
4: you should watch it. It's so good. I actually think Jared Leto is fantastic. Jared in this Leto. Movie.
3: The only way I could describe it, this might be an Australian phrase, but I just go, "He's on one. He's absolutely on one in this movie. He's absolutely." <laughs> That's
4: an American phrase. He's too. on one. Yes.
3: He's absolutely yeah. on one. So I don't know if it's an Aussie. And yeah, so but-
4: is and so is Gaga. It's great, but yeah, Gaga. no, it is it is weird when like there are scenes where they're speaking English and Italian accent, and then like there's this scene where they like he crosses the border into Switzerland, and I'm like, why? Why? Are they-? I don't know. They're speaking something, and I'm like, wait, what? None of the language choices make sense, but whatever. I forgive but, you, Ridley.
3: <laughs> but but Adam Driver, he had to speak in like that Spanish Latin accent, which he did a brilliant job in in Martin Scorsese's Silence, and then he mm. has done accent work there. And I just feel like he's gonna he's he's a man guy. He's you know I mean the when Martin Scorsese calls yeah when Martin Scorsese is like he might be the best actor of his generation about Driver, I'm like that's that's a pretty a pretty burdensome um it's a pretty burdensome endorsement if, if there's any endorsement that's like like amazing and make you feel good but also extremely burdensome it's when Scorsese says he's like you might be the best actor of your generation yeah, it's you're like, like, oh thanks, shit. thanks martin thanks, thanks right. marty that was awesome okay cool nothing to live up to or anything that just the, right. one of the greatest filmmakers of all time just
5: and i want to be very clear i wasn't actually even sort of casting a sidelong glance at driver's ability to do it so much as kind of like in a man movie set among Italians you're almost kind of like why didn't they all you know like Jake Adelstein uh Ansel Elgort learning Japanese right that's we've praised that
3: we've praised that so much I I, we love the multilingual nature of Tokyo Vice and people just slipping in and out of yeah. different dialects and speaking in different languages and then going from English to back to Japanese. I, I, I can't get enough of that. I'm like, Absolutely. this should be more like, take more time, do that. You know, if you're going to go spend X amount, of million dollars on a production to do it, like make it like, make it right. And they, they did a fantastic job with that. So yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I feel like, I feel like it'll be moments where yeah, I think man will like if if he was ever going to be learning Italian or doing scenes in Ita- some scenes in Italian and things like that, I think that they're gonna do it. But we haven't even talked about the most exciting thing, which is you know when we talk about man, you know a lot of it is like professionals, but he also knows how to put some of the most horrendously attractive women of all time on screen for us. and Penelope Cruz in a Michael Mann film, it just might be the convergence of all of my dreams. Um I might just <laughs> say that right now. It's just like it's like Penelope Cruz, Michael Mann italy in the 50s i'm like oh talk about wow just i can't wait
5: it's going to be beautiful isn't it i mean just that shot of the uh, of her bedroom that he put on instagram you know with the wallpaper you can actually she's on the her right her hand her and, side and yeah yes yeah, yeah. She, yeah
3: she's in the right hand
5: and like the camera must be outside of the window because like very blurry on like one of the monitors you can see her face and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just going to be, uh, uh, this word is going to sound creepy in the context of public Cruz. I'm not, you brought her up, but it's going to be sumptuous, isn't it? Right? Just yes. Like rich, <laughs> just like green wallpaper. And I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't wait.
4: She, she, yeah, she's going to be incredible. I just love to see her in a heightened state. I feel like she'll be like in a heightened state. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs>
3: that's her, that's her, that's her wheelhouse. We want her in that heightened state parading yeah. the living daylights out of adam driver i can't wait yeah hopefully the memes are better than you know, marriage story, you know, the marriage story Adam Driver memes where he's just like banging and on the wall and stuff like that. We might even get a new batch of those, which is going to be we exciting.
5: Might. We might, because again, no spoilers. It's it's a matter of the historical record. There are some fights between Enzo and Laura.
3: So yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's going to be some stuff. Look, Jonah, thank you so much for taking the time to geek out. Your, your piece was absolutely outstanding. Um, this has been super fun to talk to you. We have not really talked about Miami Vice, but we were just so excited um, to to you know, get another man acolyte on and, and someone who's got your eye because I think that that's, what's fascinating. I think that that's what our listeners get fascinated about when we have guests is that people have had FaceTime with Michael Mann and seen the creative process. And, and I, I think that you, you talked about it, which is just like, that is the reward It's like, you watch some shows and you watch some things or you see like, you know, especially in a contemporary sense, you see like bad CGI or bad choices and you see a cut corner and in a Michael Mann film, a film might not resonate with you, you might not like a characterization, but every choice is so laboured as like a labour of love. Everything, every choice of restaurant, every choice of fashion, every choice of music, you know, the harmony of windows, like who the hell, like amazing, you know, these things just to get what's in front of us and for it to render and just to percolate and just be this thing that you just want to slow cook in your brain. So that's what I loved about your piece. It was so great. It's so awesome to talk to you. Um and uh, and and just thank you so much for coming on and chatting to Katie and I because you know, I I think the drippy Michael Mann chat is probably what people is going to be the highlight for. But um but no, just just hearing you talk about this collage of you know living film and 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 I'm gonna make my wife listen and just keep pitching that to make you know my house an homage to Heat in the same way, you know, just having, (laughs) just having pictures of Michael Mann films all through the the (laughs) house. I mean, and she'll just probably say, keep it in your office. Okay. Keep it in the (laughs) studio. It doesn't need to be in the home, but, uh, it's, it's just fantastic to talk to you and thank you so much for doing this.
5: Oh, thank you guys. It, it, truly, knowing that the piece passed muster uh, with you two goes a long way. You know, it, <laughs> it means I I didn't totally fuck it up. So thank you. No, so much.
3: no, I, I you, you totally didn't. You said you said as much in an email we shared. You're like it passed muster with you, man. I'm pretty happy. I'm <laughs> L- listen, there there was so many other great man fans. I saw Bilga, you know, talk about it. I saw so many of the people that are in our community be like, this is a fantastic piece. This is the kind of stuff we want to see. So no, it's uh it's it's brilliant. So thank you. And awesome it's beautifully
4: written and like evocative about his work. So oh, man. excellent thank you so work. Much. Yeah. Thank we'll you. make Shane, sure thank we, you so much.
3: We'll make sure we link it in the show notes. Um we'll catch you guys on another episode of Miami Nice just around the corner.